Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Kittler. And this is episode 10 in our series for 2016. And today's date is the 8th of April, Friday. And this week we're talking to Noga Edelstein, who is a lady in Sydney who's proving that simple ideas are often the very best. Well, that's right. She's set up a company called Urban Outsource, and it's actually the Uber of home services. <laughs> so it's it's quite clever. So we're going to have a chat with her, and after that, we're going to have a chat with RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson, and he's also going to be talking to us about Malcolm Turnbull's tax idea. And Sinclair says it wasn't such a bad idea, but it was poorly executed and implemented. So anyway, let's first of all have a chat with Noga Edelstein. Noga Edelstein and Elka Keeley were working at Yahoo. Noga was the uh, company counsel, a lawyer, and Elka was the marketing guru, and they had a great idea. It's called Urban Outsource, and it's to help time-poor people who work long hours to get help with domestic problems, um, a leaking tap, a need to get a tradesman into your house when uh, you can't be there. And Urban Outsource provides people who've been checked, who can do the job and have a reputation for quality. Women are getting more and more into uh, technology, but they're the ones with the ideas. Uh, they don't do the coding. Here's Noga explaining where it came from and where it's going. So being busy working professionals, needing to get stuff done around the house and, you know, not being able to wait at home for a tradie to show up or trying to find a recommended cleaner. And we started thinking about this problem and we realized, you know, that it's really easy to buy goods online. Why couldn't we buy services the same way? So we built a platform that makes it quick and easy to instantly book a trusted service professional at a time that suits your schedule. Um, you could say it's a bit like Uber for home services. So how does it work exactly? I mean, what happened? I need a painter, for example. So you would come to our website. Um, so for example, a good example is cleaning. A lot of people book cleaning through our website. Um, and it's a really, it's a 60 second process. It's just sort of three steps. Tell us what you've got. So you would have a, a house that has two bedrooms, one bathroom. Um, and we would give you an instant price because we've standardized pricing. We're able to give, you know, accurate estimates upfront for the service you require. You then simply schedule the service. So you'd like it tomorrow at 10 a.m. And then you go ahead and you make the payment online. Um, and in 60 seconds, you've booked a pre-screen provider because we've screened everyone in the network. Um, we make sure they've got insurance and we've done background checks and uh, you're good to go. And then tomorrow at 10 o'clock, you'll get a cleaner at your door. And the cleaner gets paid what proportion of the money? So we take a commission on um, all transactions going through the platform, yeah. We take a 20% commission, yeah. Right. So the cleaner gets 30%, yeah. It's a very effective um, marketing tool for our service providers. Traditional online marketing requires them to pay for leads, um, which may or may not uh, actually turn into jobs. So when they're transacting through our platform, it's an actual guaranteed payment for all work they accept through the platform. What guarantee do I as a cleaner have that I'll get work if I sign up with you? There's no cost 
to be involved um, in the platform. Um, it's opt-in and opt-out. So what we find is if they've got other jobs on, they just sort of let the leads roll on and don't accept them. And when they've got some capacity, they can just simply um, accept a job that comes in through the network. It's really good for uh, providers that are really trying to build their business. It's a really great way of getting leads, really at no cost to themselves. We've had providers who've um, come on board and in like a very short period, three to four months, really doubled their business. You've had, what, 30% quarter-on-quarter growth in uh, in the last 12 months, I understand. Yeah, it's been amazing. We've really seen Aussies just embrace on-demand. We really think a lot of this is to do with the Uber phenomenon um, and really people just getting used to pressing a, a button on their phone and having somebody turn up at their door. Uh, so, you know, on-demand's been huge internationally for a while now. On-demand services globally are estimated at an opportunity of $465 billion and we're really just starting to see it take off in Australia. How do you build your service people base? Uh, you, you previously and your partner were with... Uh, Yahoo, I understand. Is that where it all came from? Yeah, we worked at Yahoo. I I guess that's where we caught the startup bug. (laughs) It's a really um, entrepreneurial environment there. Uh, In terms of growing the business, we've been very um, fortunate that most of our customer growth has been organic. Um, These kinds of personal services tend to go on, you know, personal referral and recommendation. And once you provide a good service, people do refer you on to their friends. So we've really been able to leverage that referral network. Uh, we're really starting to see referrals come through from the suppliers as well. We now get a lot of applications from uh, providers who have mates that provide services through our network. We are quite fussy with who we let in though. We've only accepted about 10% of applicants to date. We need to make sure that they're all, um, you know, meet our strict criteria. So what are those criteria? They need to have insurance. They need to have a police check. We do a screening to make sure that they're presentable and they speak English. You know, they'll understand the customer's requirements. Once in the network, they get a rating after every job and we only keep on platform those with the highest ratings. So customers are required to rate each one that you send out to them? We give the customer the opportunity to rate them, yeah. And this builds you a, a sort of a base on of reliability for your suppliers, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the suppliers are also incentivized to turn up on time and do a great job for our customers because the higher the rating, they're automatically offered more jobs. How many jobs would you get, say, in a week, month or something like that, the volume? The volume's growing. Yeah, we don't, we can't really disclose actual booking numbers at this stage, but it's growing significantly month on month, yeah. And the number of services you provide is increasing? Yeah, so we provide at the moment three key categories, cleaning, gardening and handyman. Within cleaning, we have a number of categories as well. So we can do regular cleaning. Um, so, you know, your weekly fortnightly cleaning um, and that actually accounts for about 50% of our revenue. Um, and then there's one-time services such as end of lease and spring cleans as well. What we find is a really high recurring rate. So once customers come into our platform and start transacting with us, 80% of first-time users convert to become um, regular customers. So that's a fantastic business model. Your customers, are they principally uh, homeowners, private individuals, or are they also businesses? Largely private. We do have some businesses, but it is largely private. We find, um, you know, the people that use our service are largely what we call urban professionals. So, sort of 25 to 55. They live in a capital city commuter hub. They're comfortable transacting online um, and they're really time poor. So, they, you know, 
don't have an hour to spend on Google reading reviews and comparing quotes. They just want a trusted provider to turn up on time and do what is promised. And at the moment you're in Sydney or have you spread beyond that? Yeah, we're currently in Sydney. Um, it's been really interesting. We, we're starting to get a lot of inquiries, in particular from Melbourne and other states. Um, so it's definitely on the radar to expand. When you expand, how would you go about that if you would to expand from Sydney into Melbourne? What, what process would you put in place for that? So the great thing about our business model is it's very centralised. So our customer service team, our recruitment is all centralised. So we do that all from our Sydney office. We would really look to the demographics that match our current sort of customer heat map. So really that time poor um, market um, is, is where we'd be focusing on as we expand. And how do you promote yourself? Are you mostly online or uh, do you do advertising of your services? Yeah, look, like I said, it's been, we've been very fortunate to have a lot of organic growth, but we absolutely leverage social channels um, and also uh, some great partnerships and online advertising, of course. You know, it's an online business, so, um, you know, that's where people are looking uh, when they find us. What were you doing at Yahoo? Were you in this sort of uh, online promotion bit? I was a lawyer. Yeah, I was lawyer. the general counsel at Yahoo. Yeah, I was. <laughs> and Elkie was the um, head of communications there. So it was a really good match for the two of us to get together. We had very complementary skill sets. Very different from being a lawyer. Uh, it is very different from being a lawyer. I was always very interested in strategy and commercial. And um, actually, in my last year at Yahoo, I actually went into a commercial role. So it was quite a natural progression for me. It looks as though you've struck gold in this, hasn't it? Yeah, we've we've really been going for a great ride. Um, we've been very fortunate uh, to be able to leverage some great uh, networks for female entrepreneurs as well. Um, we've been accepted into the prestigious Heads Over Heels Network, which is for high-growth uh, female-founded businesses. And there's a real uh, a lot of opportunity in Sydney at the moment for um, female founders to, to leverage those networks. Um, there's a lot of angel networks specifically targeting female founders. Um, it's you know a really great time to. Um, be launching a business. Could you see yourself expanding into other categories? Definitely on the radar, yeah. We are looking at, um, you know, our business is all about helping people find trusted household services, everyday help. So it's really about those things that people need on a day-to-day basis to maintain their home. We're really looking closely at categories at the moment. And uh, what, what other categories would you be looking at? It's probably not something we can disclose right now, but um, it's really it, the, the two sort of key things are something that people need on a recurring basis and then value added things that our regular customers need to help them around the house. So it could be things, you know, the value added services, you know, around like carpet cleaning, window cleaning um, and, you know, the day to day services, you know, things from you know, a car wash that comes to your house to, um, you know, breaking down gardening a little bit more into regular lawn mowing services. There's really unlimited categories that we could be entering here. It's interesting to note, actually, Ibis World estimated that um, at the moment we're spending over $300 billion a year outsourcing tasks we used to do ourselves, um, you know, everything from house cleaning to laundry to child nighting um, to home-delivered meals. And actually, 2014 was the first year that we spent more on personal services than on retail spend in Australia, which is phenomenal. So the category growth here, um, the opportunity is really significant. So now it raised an interesting point about women in online businesses. Uh, you guys, I guess, don't do coding and a lot of people are saying 
that uh, the key to success in Australia is teach the kids coding. But I think there's a survey that says that women entrepreneurs in this area don't code, they just have the ideas. Would that accord with what <laughs> you're doing? Um, yeah, look, I think it's particular in this business, being female founders has given us a competitive advantage because the heart of what we do, it's a personal service. And I think some uh, people have come at this problem by just throwing technology at it without understanding that this is about inviting, you know, a stranger into your home. There needs to be some trust and there needs to be some empathy for the service that they're providing. Um, Elkie and I were the customer of this business to start with. So we really understand it. We have now brought on board a CTO who is rebuilding our platform and we've got some really exciting product developments coming up. Um, So for us, understanding the business model came first and then the technology came as an enabler second. And the the CTO is a bloke, obviously. (laughs) He is. He is. We would have liked to hire a, a woman, but... As you've identified, there's yeah, there is a bit of gap in um, female coders in the country. Great, um, <laughs> Noga, thank you so much uh, for your time and uh, really interesting story. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. Really appreciate your time. Well, as I said, the simple ideas are often the best, and what Noga's uh, hooked into with her partner is um, the people you know short of time, busy inner urban dwellers, and who need handymen and the rest of it, and seems to be working pretty well, doesn't it, Leon? Absolutely. I think it's, I think it's absolutely fascinating. Fascinating. And it's all, it's all outsourced. Very, very clever. And anyway, now let's have a chat with Sinclair Davidson. He's going to be talking to us all about Malcolm Turnbull's ideas for the states to raise their own income taxes. And he says that it wasn't such a bad idea, but it was very, very badly implemented. So let's have a chat to Sinclair Davidson. Sinclair Davidson, Malcolm Turnbull had proposed the states impose their own income taxes and that proposal has died because the states oppose it. But clearly there's an issue with federation at the moment and the states begging for money every year. What's your view about this? Um, I actually liked the idea that Malcolm Turnbull came up with. Uh, I didn't like his execution of it at all, but I think the idea of the state income tax financing state expenditure is actually a very good idea. It's something that hopefully will be revisited uh, sooner rather than later. Um, it's something that actually was built into our constitution. We we had a state and federal income tax right up until 1942 when the state income tax was well, not abolished, but displaced by the federal income tax because we were at war and the federal government needed the money. But after the war, of course, the federal government didn't give up its taxing powers. And as I always say to my students, the, the, the states and territories lost the Second World War. And certainly in, in a financial sense, uh, they, they certainly did. Um, and the consequence of this is that in federal systems, Australia's got the worst case of fiscal imbalance or to use correctly terms, vertical fiscal imbalance of any federation in the world whereby the states actually don't raise nearly enough money to finance their own activities and they've got to beg money from the, the Commonwealth. One of the issues raised was that it would disadvantage smaller states like, say, Tasmania 
and South Australia, which have a smaller tax base. They actually have smaller economies to a large extent because of that very fiscal imbalance that we have because at the moment where we've got a federal income tax, we've got a one-size-fits-all model. And, of course, the, the Australian economy is very different across a very large geographic area. And so it doesn't actually benefit South Australia and Tasmania to have the same effectively high tax systems which they do have um, under the, the one-size-fits-all model. So in time, we would actually have a situation whereby tax rates across the federation would diverge from each other and different states would offer different bundles of goods and services. And Tasmania and, and South Australia would be able to engage in some tax competition to generate more economic activity in their regions and grow themselves out of difficulty. What that model suggests is an American-style system where you have different states with different tax systems. What would that do for business investment? Well, business investment would flow to where it was a more friendly environment. I mean, the, the, the argument that we've got an American-style system is, or we would have an American-style system, is exactly right because we are a federation just like the United States of America. And that was actually a conscious choice made by the founders of the Australian Constitution. So even if you look at some of our terminology, we have a House of Representatives like the Americans have. We have a Senate like the Americans have. We have states like the Americans have. That was actually a conscious design choice made by the founders when Australia came together. But what actually happens is that we don't run our federation like the Americans run theirs. We don't have a federal structure per se. We actually try to run our economy and our federal relations like a unitary state, whereas in actual fact we are a federation. And a lot of the difficulties and complexities and Almost malinvestment that occurs in Australia occurs because we are a federation trying to operate like a unitary state. And uh, as a result, though, now we have a situation where the government has offered and the states have accepted $3 billion of funding for health, but it's not going to be funding schools because the government doesn't run any schools. Well, the, the, the federal government shouldn't be running schools. Um, the federal government shouldn't even have an education department. I mean, if you've got a whole education department and you don't employ a single teacher or employ um, or own a single school, you've got to ask yourself, well, what are you doing in, in, in education? And the, the same is true in hospitals. The, the federal government spends a lot of money on hospitals and shouldn't be spending any money on hospitals. So it's, it's not clear to me what it is that they do. Now, it's, it's the old expression, uh, the, the, the devil finds work for idle hands. Well, the devil has found spending for idle funds. So the federal government raises all of this revenue and, of course, uh, needs to find ways of spending it. And so so they give it back to the states with all these terms and conditions and one-size-fits-all uh, uh, terms uh, with them. And so we actually end up where we've got more or less um, sort of imposed uniformity from above, whereas if we had a more federal structure like we're supposed to have, we would have more uniformity because the states would be adopting best practice as opposed to adopting what the Commonwealth thinks should be done. So um, a lot of the, the, the problems that we have around health and education are actually driven by the fact that the states don't levy their own income tax, don't pay for their own expenditure. Now, what was interesting with this model was it was proposed – and it was abandoned, but there was no discussion about it before, unlike, say, something like the GST, where the electorate had basically been softened up by John Howard and before that Paul Keating for a GST, for a goods and services tax. So people knew what they were getting. 
this didn't happen. And also it didn't help that uh, Turnbull was proposing this without Morrison by his side. So I don't think this was very well handled, very well managed. Well, there's a number of thoughts. One, it was a complete thought bubble. Or two, it was an idea that was going to be developed that then leaked. Um, or three, it was an ambush for the state governments because they were going to turn up at COAG last Friday asking for $80 billion and they got away with three. And at the end of it all, uh, I think the, the Premier of, of Victoria, Daniel Andrews, was saying how grateful he was for the money that he had received. So if, if it was an ambush, it certainly wasn't a, a, a good ambush because it is actually a good idea that would have then been sacrificed for a, a short-term political gain. It also didn't make the Prime Minister look very good. It, it did look like a thought bubble that had gone horribly out of control. I mean, if, if, if you think back to the GST, in Australia, there have been proposals for a GST since the 1970s. And everybody knew what a GST was before one was introduced in 1998. There'd even been a general election fought over a GST. People in Australia don't understand what a state income tax is because we haven't had one since 1942. So the only people who would know such a thing would be sort of like the the, the diehards or the people actually understand a bit about fiscal federalism, uh, which is a very small number. So it would be a completely foreign idea to people to be thrown out on a Wednesday to be discussed on Friday with absolutely no documentation, no proposal, no firm idea what it is. I, I mean, I was fielding questions from journalists overseas asking me about the details of the Prime Minister's plan. And I was saying to them, well, you've got exactly the detail that the rest of the Australian uh, economy has. And, and they were actually quite shocked that this was this idea just put out there uh, with, with no discussion paper even. You know, So it, it, it's, it's a very strange way of doing things. Um, and certainly now has been spun as a mechanism of, of having having ambushed the, the, the states and putting responsibility onto the states, which, I mean, that is a good spin. And, of course, it's entirely true, which is, which is why it's good spin. But nonetheless, um, it, it made the prime minister look shifty. It made him look unprepared. Um, it, it, it certainly created the impression that the, the current government doesn't know what it's doing, um, looks divided. I mean, the, the treasurer should at least be across the plan if there was such a plan. I mean, it probably really just is a thought bubble, which has worked out quite nicely to sort of ambush the state premiers. I just thought it was extraordinary because the treasurer didn't seem to know about it and the, all the assistant treasurer was doing was assisting the poultry industry. <laughs> so I yes, yes. Um, and and they, they also brought out a, a more detailed country of origin uh, uh, plan, which... I have to say, I'm not a big fan of these country of origin labeling type things, but it did strike me as this, this is not like serious work when you're actually talking about totally restructuring our federation and uh, everybody else is talking about chickens. Now, <laughs> but the, 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 the point is, and you're, you're making the point that this issue is not going to go away because we are a federation and uh, it will come up again. So how should this be managed next time? by the government, whether it's Malcolm Turnbull or whether it's another political leader or, for that matter, whether it's a Labor government? Well, I, I think the, we need to start talking about um, what it is that we want from our health and education systems because we, we actually – we talk in very vague terms. Now, we often talk about we've got to have the best health system or the world's best practice education system, but it's not quite clear 
what that actually means. It's not clear how much that's going to cost. And it's not even clear why we would want to have such a thing. We actually want to have an education system that's fit for purpose or a health system that means that people live long, comfortable lives. I mean, and actually drill down into what that means, how much it's going to cost and who is going to be paying for it. Because at the moment, it's, it's a case of the, the, the federal government effectively pays for it by imposing costs on federal taxpayers, which means that individual states have got an incentive to gold plate their services that they provide. Now, we don't want gold-plated services. We just want good services, efficient services. So we need to start drawing attention to the adverse consequences, the waste which occurs when you don't pay for something yourself. So I would talk a lot about that. I would also be talking directly to the people of South Australia and Tasmania, explaining to them that the one-size-fits-all model that they at the moment get a lot of welfare expenditure from actually means that they need to get welfare, that they can't actually grow themselves out of difficulty. So the the, the problem you have with the one-size-fits-all model is that poor parts of the country remain poor and even might get poorer. It's very hard for them to move ahead. So I would actually start talking about the costs. I would start talking about the opportunities. I would actually start introducing people to the idea that so-called duplication in a federal system is not a cost. It is actually a benefit. That's specifically what's supposed to happen. So I would talk more about what federation is, what it means, how it should be financed, how local expenditure would be driving local goods and services. I would also explain to people that this means greater levels of accountability and democracy at state government levels. I mean, we're at a stage now where most of the major newspapers don't even cover state politics very well because there's no real need to. They just cover the federal politics. So, you know, it would actually need to, it would drive accountability. It would drive democratic values. It would drive localism and all these things that we talk about being important, but we don't actually ever do anything about it because we've got this giant federal tax cartel, which one size fits all is actually disadvantaging many parts of the country. So any future government that does this would have to actually embark on a great public awareness campaign first. Yes, absolutely. And and of course, public awareness is a good thing. Um, I suspect many governments don't like public awareness because it actually makes their life easier rather than harder. Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Yeah, very interesting as usual, Sinclair. It, you know, I think, um, you know, the politics got in the way of a lot of it, I guess, don't you? What do you think? I think so too. I think, well, I, the issue though, is, uh, as I pointed out, Sinclair, is that the, the federation model is troubled. I mean, every year you've got the states going to the feds asking for money and we're actually a federation. So, you know, much like America and, and, uh, what Turnbull was proposing was an American style tax system. Which wouldn't have been a bad idea, except nobody felt very comfortable about it. Yeah, except there are a whole lot of issues to sort out, uh, like, uh, Tasmania and South Australia. But uh, anyway, it's worth looking at. Anyway, lots been happening this week in the news, Gary. First of all, IMF Chief Christine Lagarde has warned that the time is running out to revive the global economy. And she was speaking at Frankfurt's Goethe University and she said the global economy's already modest prospects will decline further unless authorities take stronger action to boost growth. And she said China's shift to an economic model based more on domestic demand, stubborn low commodity prices and tighter funding conditions in some countries has clouded the outlook. And for the first time, she prescribed some specific policy actions. And she said there should be a higher minimum wage in the US, expanded tax credits for the working poor, improved family leave benefits 
And uh, she said Euro area countries should implement better training and employment matching policies to help reduce unemployment for young people. And she also called for better tax incentives to encourage research and development investments and more public spending in this area. And she also gave her strongest hint that the IMF is going to cut its global economic forecast next week. Yeah, well, a lot of senior people in Australia and uh, elsewhere around the world are agreeing with her that uh, things aren't looking too well. Uh, and, of course, uh, Donald Trump has uh, tried to cash in on that by frightening people in the U.S. and saying there's a big recession coming, but uh, Donald isn't always right, is he? No, no, definitely not, but still it's it's worth looking at. Now, in Australia, uh, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull says the government will prioritise growth over deficit reduction in next budget, and that puts a focus on rising tax receipts from faster expansion. Uh, speaking to Sky News Sunday, more than a month out from the budget, Turnbull indicated there was no quick fix to the budget and the government had no plans to accelerate returning the budget to black. And that's despite eight years of deficits and a team of economists and high-ranking officials from CEDA last week putting forward that would rest- plans that would restore the budget surplus in three years. And uh, Turnbull described the budget as a long-term project and he cited New Zealand Prime Minister John Key as having successfully implemented a similar strategy. So there won't be any deficit reduction in this budget. No, no. I think the idea is get, let's get the budget out of the way without upsetting the election prospects and then maybe we start on the hard yards then. Now, the big news story for the week, of course, was the release of the files from Panama law firm Mossack Fonseca, Fonseca, which found all sorts of people hiding their wealth overseas and the tax office is investigating more than 800 high net wealth Australian clients of this uh, Panama law firm, which is the focus of an unprecedented link of tax haven records released globally. Now, more than 11.5 million documents have been leaked from Monseca's files, revealing the secrets of hundreds of thousands of clients, including several thousands of Australians, covering a period of almost 40 years from 1977 until as recently as last December. And the release of the documents on Monday follows a 12-month investigation by media groups led by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, which was led by our old mate Gerard Ryle, Gary. That's right, indeed it was. The files show how Mossack Fonseca thwarted Australian regulators and police inquiries, continued to act for individuals accused of fraud and embezzlement, and lobbied actively to prevent Australia signing agreements that would allow the exchange of tax information with Samoa, which is a key tax avoidance jurisdiction. Now, most investors and corporations who use tax havens have legitimate reasons to use them, but the leak records also show some companies domiciled in Haymards were using them for suspected money laundering, arms and drug deals, and tax avoidance. And meanwhile, the ABC Four Corners program revealed that BHP Bill and Wilson Security, which has guards governing buildings, are among hundreds of Australian names linked to the Panama law firm. And the Australian Financial Review revealed that BHP Billiton had an angry confrontation with Mossack Fonseca when it put the mining company through due diligence, claiming that a string of governance controversies had put it into a high-risk category. And so that's quite extraordinary. It is. It's like coming out of a John Christian novel, you know, international intrigue and dark corners and expensive places. Well, yeah, you've got the Iceland Prime Minister resigning and, of course, uh, David Cameron's in a lot of trouble in England over it. Well, that's right. Allegations he's denied, of course. But, uh, you know, obviously, you know, with this number of documents and more to come, they're coming down 
almost daily, aren't they? That's right, that's right. Now, a widely watched private index of job advertisements has shown demand for workers stagnating since late last year. The ANZ Job Advertisement Series recorded a 0.2% rise in ads during March, led by a 0.4% increase in online ads, and that was offset by an 11.4% slump in the now niche newspaper sector. However, the relatively subdued March result has now dragged the more stable trend figure for job ads into negative for the first time since October 2013. And uh, trend data showed job ads falling 0.2% last month, which is a bit of a worry, Gary. It is, and the prospect is there'll be more too. That's right. And uh, Australian retail sales have come in absolutely flat. Retail sales for January were unchanged from 0.3% rise reported when the figures were first issued a month ago. Economists were expecting a 0.4% rise. Household goods and department stores rose, but cafe and restaurant sales actually fell. It was a third weaker than expected outcome for retail sales, and retail sales were particularly weak in the mining states, falling by 0.4% in Queensland, 0.6% WA, and a large 1.6% drop in the Northern Territory. But what was even more worrying, Gary, however, was the evidence showing that sales growth has flattened in Victoria New South Wales, alongside softening house price growth, and the two states contributed 2.5% to year-end growth in February, compared with 2.8% in November. And that's a bit of a worry. Yes, indeed. Yes, it is. And uh, I don't think we've heard the last of it. Then also some heat has come out of the Australia's property market. It's being held up by apartments. The approval for construction of new homes rose 3.1%, but that was only because of a 7.6% bounce in the volatile apartment segment. And meanwhile, businesses are now at their most pessimistic in two years. The latest done in Bradstreet Business Expectations Survey shows business expects sales, profits, employment and capital investment to fall in the last quarter of the financial year compared to the previous three months. And the average of the survey's measures of sales, profits, employment and capital investment has fallen 12.7 points for the second quarter of 2016. That's down 6.2 points from 18.9 for the uh, first quarter of 2016, and businesses are more pessimistic than they were last year. Uh, there's been a fall of 7.4% from 20.1 point from the second quarter of 2015. Now, the gloomiest businesses were in retail, which reported a 47.1% decline in expectations the second quarter, and the services sector's expectations more than half. But at the same time, businesses reported a stronger actuals performance over the quarter. Now, I reckon the problem there, Gary, is that everyone is worried about two things. One, China, and secondly, the prospect of an election. And what's that going to bring? Yep, and I think that's absolutely right. And if you look at China... Uh, you'd be silly not to be worried. That's right. Now, Australia's trade deficit blew out dramatically to $3.4 billion in February. That's the fifth biggest figure on record, and market expectations have been for the deficit to narrow to $2.4 billion. Imports were flat. Exports uh, fell 1%. Or 308 million. Now, the figures might signal a weakening in the economy following a lackluster February retail sales figures that we talked about before. But Australia's trade accounts are under pressure because of falling commodity prices, the rising Australian dollar, which is up around 76, 77 cents, and weakness in Chinese demand. And uh, the Aussie is now trading 12% higher since mid-January, which is why when the RBA uh, kept interest rates steady this week, on 2%, RBA Governor Glenn Stevens alluded to the dollar. He said that it, under present circumstances, an appreciating exchange rate could complicate the adjustment underway in the economy. Well, basically, Glenn Stevens hasn't got much room to move. We're at 2%. If he takes off, what, even half of a cent, it's not going to do very much because what's a dollar up? About six cents in the last month. 
Well, people are still betting on the dollar going up to 80 cents and that the RBA will move at least twice this year. So let's just watch this space. Now, the giant Adani coal mine has moved another step closer with Queensland government approving the mining leases for its $21.7 billion mine and rail project in the Galilee Basin. But this decision puts pressure on Adani to fund the massive infrastructure project. And the bottom line, Gary, is that banks are very wary of lending money to the project because it's attracting anti-fossil fuel activists around the country. And the mine's business model is struggling in the face of plunging coal prices, which have also dogged other projects like Jenna Reinhardt's Hancock Coal and Clive Palmer's Waratah Coal. Environmental activists are fighting the decision. There are two court cases challenging the mine, one from traditional owners and the other from the Australian Conservation Foundation. They're still ongoing. So uh, just watch that space. I'm not sure it's going to get up. No, well, coal's on, on the nose. China's dropping its coal imports. And the Australian banks have got other big, big problems, not least of them, Wyala. That's right. Well, this is this is a huge issue. Arium, the uh, steelmaking firm, looks like it's going to go into voluntary administration, Gary. The company's shares were suspended from trading on the Australian Securities Exchange on Wednesday morning, pending the release of an announcement following talks with the lenders. Now, Arium was due to come out of trading hold on Wednesday before ASX started trading. Uh, but the trading suspension has heightened speculation the firm could be heading for voluntary administration. Now, from what I hear, Gary, the bankers have decided, and Arium owes $2.8 billion to all these bankers and US bondholders, the bankers have decided that voluntary administration is the way to go, and they've run out of patience with Wyala, which hasn't put in a good return since 2009. I think the problem with Wyala goes way, way further back than that. Yeah. It's, it's never been really well run. So I think Arium's probably going to go into voluntary administration over the next week. Now, on another front, Optus is planned to cut close to 500 jobs as part of a restructure of its consumer and enterprise divisions. The changes have come in the wake of TPG's takeover of IONET, which has given it a bigger broadband custom base in Optus. And it's also an acknowledgement of a cutthroat competition between Optus, Vodafone, Hutchison, Australia and Telstra. And Optus said the change is going to help Optus reshape its workforce with the skills required in an increasingly digital world. So it's all very new there. Yeah, well, that's right. But they are still now number three and likely to stay there. That's right. And the other big, big banking story, Gary, is that the Australian Securities and Investments Commission has launched legal proceedings against Westpac for alleged rate rigging. And ASIC has accused Westpac of manipulating one of the nation's benchmark interest rates, the bank bill swap rate, or BBSW, between April 2010 and June 2012. And the BBSW is a primary interest rate benchmark used in Australian financial markets. It helps banks set rates for businesses and commercial loans. And uh, so that's quite significant. And Malcolm Turnbull gave a speech yesterday, ironically at Westpac's 199th anniversary, where he got stuck into the banks and told them to lift their game. <laughs> Absolutely right. And I think some other banks are going to be hauled into the swap rate deal too. Well, they're also checking out Commonwealth and NAB, but they haven't brought any legal action against them. But anyway, let's just watch that space. And that's it for this week, Gary. Great, Leon. That's terrific. And uh, next week we've got... Uh Ian Porter. Yeah, we're talking to Ian Porter, who's a uh, specialist in the motoring industry, and we're going to have a fascinating chat with him. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter, on Talking Biz, B-I-Z-Z, or on Facebook. Until then, stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week.